Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books in Genocide Studies podcast. I am your host today, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my honor to be in dialogue with Jeffrey Kopstein and Jason Witzenberg. We will be be discussing their newly published book, Intimate Violence, Anti-Jewish Pogroms on the Eve of the Holocaust, published in Ithaca, New York by Cornell University Press, 2018. Jason is professor of political science at the University of California, Berkeley. Jeffrey is professor and chair of political science at the University of California, Irvine. Thank you for your generosity in engaging in a dialogue with me today. Great to be here. Yep. Thank you so much. To begin, can you kindly tell us about yourselves? What formative events in your lives inspired the scholars you would become? What formative events in your lives cultivated your interest in this particular topic? Do you have any order you'd like us to go in? You can you can go first. Okay. So um I'm a child really of Cold War era. I grew up in Canada. Um, and from parent, with parents from Eastern Europe. And I became a student of East European politics. Um, and I did my PhD at Berkeley in the 1980s. Um, um, and I, I, I was interested in problems of dictatorship and democracy and the big problems of the 20th century and how that influenced Eastern Europe. And then um, and maybe I'll leave a bit to Jason to talk about how we actually got into this project, but we, we Jason and I eventually engaged in a, in a multi-year project looking at the behavior of ethnic minorities and majorities in Eastern Europe. And then eventually we realized that that, and we'll talk a bit about this, how that could help us explain um, anti-Jewish violence when the opportunity presented itself during World War II. That's how I sort of got into this. Maybe Jason can pick it up from there. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> kind of similar similar background. Um, 
um, you know, part of, uh, if not most of my family is from Eastern Europe. So there was a little bit of uh, that uh, to begin with before I even got into political science. There was a interest in Eastern Europe. Um, uh, you know, a, a lot of interest in state socialism uh, and its immediate aftermath, because that's when I uh, sort of, uh, you know, got into the field of political science was uh, right around the time that communism uh, was collapsing and uh, we weren't sure what was going to come after. So, uh, uh, you know, those were important events, uh, you know, the fall of Ber Berlin Wall, all of that stuff, the collapse of communism were important events which pushed me on a track that I might not have pursued uh, otherwise within political science. Uh, and in terms of the project itself, uh, you know, it. Uh, I guess the, the best way of uh, putting it would be that it presented itself. Um, there was a renewed interest in uh, this kind of anti-Jewish violence uh, in the 2000s uh, sparked uh, in part by the publication uh, of uh, Jan Gross's uh, book, Neighbors, um, which we can talk about, uh, you know, f further on, uh, if you like. And so that was a, a important thing in terms of uh, creating uh, a lot more interest in the subject. And we were essentially part of the wave of interest uh, that emerged uh, after the publication of that book. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? Hmm. Um, well, there, I, I think there are a couple of things. Um, one is that um, the study of the Holocaust, while it, 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 it's properly seen as one giant, big, unique event, um, parts of the Holocaust, especially the part that we're studying in this book, which is a set of kind of ghastly pogroms of neighbor-on-neighbor -neighbor violence that broke out in the first six weeks of um, after June 22nd, 1941, that is after the onset of, of World War II on the Eastern Front, those pogroms um, are comparable with um, other kinds of, of events that took place in other times and places, sometimes not even involving Jews. That is to say, the Holocaust, we can learn a lot, people who are interested in the Holocaust, from uh, other cases of neighbor-on-neighbor -neighbor violence. And those students of neighbor-on-neighbor -neighbor violence can also learn a lot from the Holocaust. In essence, we're trying to mainstream the study of the Holocaust into the kind of general corpus of social scientific work, which strangely enough had not it had not really happened. We were we were some of the first ones to, to jump into this. Historians have been interested in it for a long time, of course. But if you look at political science, for example, um, the first panel devoted completely at the American Political Science Association, which meets every year with between seven and 10,000 political scientists, the first panel in the history of the American Political Science Association devoted solely to the Holocaust was in 2011. And we know because we organized it. And, um, and so, uh, our book is trying to kind of contribute to this and invite others to, to jump into these debates to, to kind of use the, the, the lessons of the Holocaust. Now, exactly what those lessons are, um, that's something reasonable people can can debate and talk about, it, but maybe I'll let Jason jump in. Uh, yeah, uh, so, I'm, you know, I agree with what was just said, of course. Um, 
uh, very important. Uh, I just add maybe one or two other things. Uh, uh, you know, one lesson uh, to be drawn is uh, despite the way that the Holocaust is uh, popularly uh, portrayed, uh, in reality, it was not a black and white uh, it was not a black and white issue. So uh, in the following sense that, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, national groups that are labeled as perpetrators, uh, you know, you can't really label a whole group as a, uh, as a perpetrator group. So you have to uh, disaggregate uh, among the perpetrators. And uh, more uh, importantly, you have to disaggregate among the victims, uh, you know, also. So uh, this idea in the context of our argument about Poles versus Jews, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, it's really, uh, it really hides more, it really hides a far more complex reality uh, that you have to sort of, uh, that, that you have to kind of uh, get at through data collections. So if, if I, I think it might be useful for basically for us to say what the basic argument of the book was. Yes, uh, that was going to be my next question. What yeah. is your book's argument okay. and what are the primary themes? So, um, you know, let me just jump in with an empirical fact. And, and Jason mentioned Jan Gross's book, uh, which was um, called Neighbors, which is a, a terrible pogrom that occurred in the in the Polish, northeastern Polish town of Yedwabne on, on July uh, 7th, 1941. So what happens is right after the outbreak of the war on the Eastern Front on June 22nd, the Germans roll through very quickly on their way to try to get to Moscow as quickly as possible. On their way through these towns on the Eastern Front, many thousands of towns, a couple thousand towns where, where, where Jews lived uh, alongside not their non-Jewish neighbors, the Germans basically said, look, you Poles, you Ukrainians, you, you you Lithuanians, Romanians, you do whatever you want with your neighbors, right? They try to encourage the locals to do their dirty work for them, to kill their Jewish neighbors. And what Jason and I found is that in a certain percentage of these towns, about 10% of these towns, the locals massacred, raped their Jewish neighbors, stole their goods, took their homes, um, it didn't happen everywhere. It happened in some places and not in others. And that fact, that observation, led us to ask the very basic social scientific question, why some communities became toxic under the right circumstances, and some did not. The Germans complained in places where they could not get locals to carry out these pogroms. We know that because they complained in their reports. Um, but in all too many places, right, even one is too many, but in all too many places, the, the, the locals did massacre their Jewish neighbors. And we asked the very simple question, why? And put that way, our study became comparable with other kinds of studies. Why does lynching occur in some towns in the American South? Why is there Hindu Muslim violence in India? But that became the very basic. And then from there, we told a story. And the story was that certain kinds of towns, certain kinds of communities had preconditions that um, facilitated the outbreak 
of neighbor on neighbor violence. And we tried to identify what exactly those conditions were. And one of the big surprises, and Jason already hinted at this, one of the big surprises is that, yes, anti-Semitism is important. It's crucial. If everybody loved Jews, there'd never be a pogrom, obviously, right? But it wasn't enough on its own. We found lots of places where there were lots of anti-Semitism because there were there no pogroms. So it had to be other things. And that headed us down a pretty interesting garden path of data collection. We collected a lot of data. Maybe Jason will tell us about the kinds of things that, that we found and what makes our study sort of interesting and at the same time, slightly controversial, perhaps. What is your book's contribution to the study of the Holocaust? Uh, well, um, you know, if you notice our title, uh, uh, the title was a bit controversial for some people because it, it refers to the eve of the Holocaust. The eve of the Holocaust is not the Holocaust by definition. Uh, it's before the Holocaust. So uh, the argument of this book, uh, not that it doesn't contribute, it does in ways that uh, we can talk about, but uh, we consider uh, uh, this wave of pogroms just in the summer of 1941, though. So it's a wave of pogroms in the summer of 1941 Uh our bottom line is this was the last uh, wave of conventional pogrom violence against Jews before the Holocaust uh, actually gets going. So if you look at the timeline, uh, the ghettos don't form until the fall of 1940, until the fall of 19. So things begin to coalesce beginning in the fall of 1941. But all the violence that we look at takes place uh in the summer of 1941 and so uh you know obviously you know people disagree with you know uh there's disagreement uh on whether it should be considered uh that and and, and not and uh one of the reasons we don't um consider it is because um pogroms took place in only 10 percent of the places where they could have taken place so uh, in other words, uh, in 90 percent, which is which is, uh, you know, about, uh, you know, like 1800 uh, Polish community, po Polish and Ukrainian uh, uh, communities uh, where there were Jews and non-Jews, uh, there was no violence during the summer of 1941. Now, things change later. So very important that it's the summer of 1941. It's not 1942, and it's definitely not 1943 or 1944. So, uh, uh, you know, one of the, uh, to allude to something that uh, Jeff said earlier, one of the lessons of this for, for the Holocaust is uh, to disaggregate the different stages. Uh, and uh, within... Uh, the, within uh, the his historiography of the Holocaust, there's a tendency to uh, focus, uh, to reduce the Holocaust to the extermination camps as the central focus. It's like Auschwitz, Birkenau, uh, et cetera. But in fact, uh, uh, you know, a lot of Jews were killed, uh, uh, you know, outside of the extermination camps. And this and this is one, you know, one instance of that kind of mass killing. And also uh, we put primary responsibility on the non-Jewish civilian populations and actually not the Germans, except as a kind of a background factor. Uh, 
So the pogroms of 1941 are not, in fact, we exclude instances in which the Germans are actually doing the killing. That's not a pogrom. That's, if you will, the Holocaust. In what ways do your book's findings shed light on why pogroms occurred and how they unfolded? Um, um, well, one of the things we, pogroms are, are very complex, messy events, right? They're chaotic. Um, but one of the, the most typical account of pogroms stresses um, um, hatred, right? That is, the Jews were hated, anti-Semitism. And as I said before, we don't discount that. That exists, right? It exists, and it's, it's everywhere. Another typical account in pogroms is the, um, um, the desire for, for, to loot Jewish wealth, to take their goods, their apartments, right? That's very, very typical. Um, and one of the things that we're able to do in our book is we're able to not so much discount those other factors as to say they're not as important as most people think they are, right? Or that these other factors which usually cause pogroms, something else has to be present in order for those other factors really to be acted upon. And uh, I mean, I think that's one answer, one answer to your to your question. We try to identify, and it won't surprise you to know that what we, as political scientists, what we find is those towns in which pre-existing political polarization between Jews and their non-Jewish non neighbors was already strong and present, those communities were much more likely to, to kind of lack the basic social solidarity that is required to prevent these pogroms when all the arrows are pointing in that direction. When the Germans say, look, go for it. When there's lots of violence all around, when there was, there was lots of hatred already present. Um, but even with all of those things, it was this pre-existing political polarization that created the kind of communal context, the atmosphere in which these other motives Right, which are myriad, the whole myriad kind of um, um, kind of background features of human subjectivity, of greed and hatred, sexual depravity, all the other things. The, all of those things may be present, but they are usually we found they are usually acted upon only in certain kinds of places. In your opinion, what are the advantages of quantitative analysis and quantitative methods? in the study of Jewish history and in the study of the Holocaust, are there any disadvantages? Uh, well, the advantages, uh, you know, are multifold. Uh, so, uh, you know, Jewish studies uh, and history uh, also. So uh, just to separate those two. So uh, you could do them from both perspectives. Uh, uh, are in general not quantitative uh, disciplines. And so... Uh, Part of the issue uh, with that is that uh, uh, the people that study these things uh, tend to rely on a set of stylized facts that they know that are not wrong. It's just uh, they uh, focus on, uh, you know, an event uh, like a pogrom uh, to justify an argument without actually uh you know, understanding uh, the broader uh, empirical uh, situation of like how many pogroms were were there and how rare uh, were they. And so uh, 
the debates are often uh, talking past each other because each side can point to their own facts which support their uh which support their things and so that's kind of a dead end uh, actually um so the advantage of quantitative uh at least the way we did the quantitative work which is to collect the whole universe of data from um uh several polish provinces uh at the time would be able to maybe put some of these claims uh in in perspective for example the claim that uh that uh you know all poles and ukrainians were uh you know genocidal types that were just waiting for the opportunity to uh get back at the jews uh, is actually belied by our findings. It's not a very popular finding um, in Jewish studies, but uh, uh, within Jewish studies. But the truth is that, uh, you know, 90% of the places that had Poles and Ukrainians, uh, whatever they thought in their heads, did not act upon them to do pogroms, even when they had the ideal circumstances to do it. It just didn't happen. And so uh, you can only make this kind of conclusion uh, based on a quantitative analysis. There's really no way to do this based on a qualitative uh, analysis. And so, you know, that's uh, one of many advantages. The disadvantage of it, I will tell you, uh, is that uh, uh, when you do uh, data analysis like that, so you're looking at the whole situation from above, uh, uh, often you have to make... Uh, you have to make compromises uh, uh, in terms of how you collect the data so that the data are comparable, uh, you know, with each other across space uh, and over time. And so uh, that involves uh, necessary simplifications. And the net effect of that is that uh, you take a pogrom, which is this complex thing that has a beginning and it has an end and it has an unfolding and a process and things go on, those get reduced uh, down into data points. Um, and so, uh, you know, some of the criticisms we received uh, are about reducing these complex events, you know, down into data points. And so that, and, uh, you know, it's a, an acknowledged weakness of uh, this form of, uh, of, a, of a quantitative analysis. So, uh, yeah. It comes with its pluses and minuses, but on balance, it's a plus uh, because, uh, uh, you know, there, it, in our particular case, there really were, were no data on it. And if you look at the debate that emerged after Jan Gross's publication of Neighbors, uh, Yedvabna, which was a particularly brutal pogrom that he talks about, became synonymous with all pogroms. Uh, in uh, uh, in the region, and it's actually not synonymous with all the pogroms. So it you know it has its place. Thank you. How does power threat theory help us understand the history of anti-Jewish pogroms? How does the perception of quote unquote political threat explain the events that you document? Okay, let me take a stab at that. Um, it, it... The power threat theory comes comes out of the study of racial um, racial politics in the United States, actually, and it's really trying to look at the conditions under which um, white people um, 
turned violently against their um, black neighbors, black people in their own communities, or they started to vote for extremist parties or joined the Ku Klux Klan. And the idea is that there's something about modern politics. Modern politics is an age in which we all vote, we all mobilize, and public opinion really matters. In modern politics, ethnic divisions can be mobilized politically. And when communities are divided ethnically or racially, in the case of the pogroms we're interested in, the communities are divided ethnically. The dominant group, whether it's Poles or Ukrainians or, or, or Romanians or Lithuanians, they have Jewish neighbors. And what they worry about, one of the things they worry about is that the Jews who also have the right to vote in modern democracies um, and some portion of their of their co-ethnics, whether it's Poles or Lithuanians or Ukrainians, might actually get together and upset the dominance of the big ethnic group. And so one of the things we argue in the book is just as African-Americans in the United States were perceived to be a threat to the white dominance in the South, Jews, under conditions of modern politics, could come to be perceived as a threat to the Polish nation-building project, to the Lithuanian-Polish nation-building project, to the Ukrainian nation-building project. And this is a factor, right, that really those students who were interested in the Holocaust and, and, Holoc and pre-Holocaust violence in Eastern Europe that really nobody had looked at. And it required the collection of a huge amount of new data that were out there but which nobody had thought to consider, that is voting data, that nobody had thought to consider of connecting the voting and demographic and economic data and saying, is there a systematic relationship between those relationships and what eventually happens later in the summer of 1941? And to, to, to my mind, to our mind, I think we're the first ones to really to do that kind of thing. Now, whether we got it right, whether it's successful, that's that's another story. But I think that's that's how power threat theory relates. It's about modern politics. And so what we're seeing in the summer of 1941 is the kind of penultimate chapter of modern Jewish and non-Jewish politics in that area area of the world. Jason? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have uh, too, too much uh, to add to that. Uh, the only... Uh, uh, you know the the only uh, slide uh, addendum uh, I would put on that, uh, because that that suggests that uh, you know this argument suggests that uh, you have to have modern politics, which which means it can't explain. The pogroms have been going on uh, basically since antiquity. Uh, uh, so uh, you know. Uh, so it's it's an explanation which uh, has as a necessary condition something like modern politics where numbers matter. The numbers of the groups matter. That's an important thing. So if you have a king uh, uh, or an emperor uh, and there's no modern politics, uh, uh, you know, you you would need a different, uh, you know, you would need a different uh, kind of an argument from power threat theory. So 
you know, one uh, additional aspect beyond uh, the numbers game uh, was a kind of uh, perception by the majority uh, that they were, uh, you know, dominant over the minority. And so we know from the literature on uh, uh, on the lynchings and white-black uh, relations in the U.S., that uh, lynchings and related violence were an attempt to put African-Americans in their place. Uh, independently of their numbers, uh, you know, it's this idea that the groups are equal, which bother, which bother the majority groups. And the same is true uh, in actually Eastern Europe, uh, where, uh, you know, the Jews couldn't be allowed to think that they were actually the equal of the non-Jews. Uh, in society, independently of their actual numbers. And so you had to uh, make sure the Jews were kept in their place. And one way to do this is through is through violence, to show who's on top. Why did you choose the title, Intimate Violence? Why is this title revelatory? Uh, um, you know, we're not the first to classify uh, this kind of violence that takes place in the context of war. So you think about war, right? It's big set armies attacking each other, right? But within wars, there's oftentimes, it provides a context in which um, um, disputes can work themselves out at the local level. And people can use the opportunity to do this. And the violence that occurs, what we found was not always, or not even mostly, impersonal. That is, that is to say, violence by, uh, by people who didn't know the people that they were killing. All too often during the pogroms, and we used as our as our one of our, our one of our important dominant sources were the testimonies that were given by Jews at the Jewish Historical Institute right after the war. These are these are an excellent source because people weren't told, they didn't know what to say yet. The word Holocaust wasn't even used. Um, and that when these Jewish survivors talk about this neighbor-on-neighbor -neighbor violence, they often say they know the people by name who were doing this. Uh, or even if they didn't know them really well personally, they knew they said that's the school teacher, that was the that was the police officer, that was a lawyer. They knew each other, if not by name, but then by social function. They took place within a community. Maybe I can't remember, Jason, what was the size of the of the, the communities that we were dealing with, but it was mostly like the size of an American high school, a couple thousand people often, and. There, they would they would all know each other. They were part of a community. I mean, in an earlier rendition of the book, before we published the book, we called it deadly communities because most most people think of community as something nice and favorable and warm and supportive, but under the right conditions, these communities could be really deadly. People knew exactly who to kill, and even when the Germans came into places, and we don't really talk about this in the book. But it's sort of there when the Germans came into places and wanted to kill the Jews. They often relied on the locals to to pinpoint to finger the Jews. Right. Who are they? Where are they? Where do they live? What are their buildings? Where's the synagogue? All that stuff. They they relied on locals. And so the, the, the violence was intimate in the sense that it wasn't impersonal. Right. It was up close and, and, and you know, cold blood. Um, and I think 
that's one of the things, of course, there's parts of intimacy that we, we don't fully capture. And Jason already talked about that a little bit. Like when you look at 2000 places and you find 219 pogroms, you're going to know sometimes the, the, the testimonies told us an awful lot about what was happening in a place, right? Like the, the pogrom in Lviv, where we know a huge amount, right? Because there's multiple testimonies from multiple angles. But other po of our pogroms, we only had one or two testimonies saying the, the Germans came in, they passed through quickly, and then there was a pogrom. And that's all you, you know, right? You don't know more than that. And so you lose some of the intimacy, if you will. But in other instances, we have really, you know, kind of lots of, terrible grisly details. There's, there's photographs of these. There's even YouTube videos you can see of the Lviv pogrom. Um, and so that's part of the intimacy. You write as follows on page 11. We take no position on whether anti-Semitism ought to have the broader narrow interpretation, except to say that for our purposes, it is better to split rather than lump. We would like to know which purported purported motive for the 1941 pogroms best accords with the observed distribution of those pogroms. Were the pogroms revenge for alleged Jewish support of the Soviet occupation? Were they about robbery and the opportunity to get rid of economic rivals? Were they about ridding the nation of an alien and fundamentally unassimilable, unassimilable group? For analytic clarity, we refer only to the last question as implying anti-Semitism. We make local level anti-Semitism operational by using the interwar vote for nationalist parties that espoused the narrow view of anti-Semitism. Can you elaborate on this passage for us? Can you clarify what you were trying to say? Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, basically... Uh... Uh, so, uh, you know, in the discourse on anti-Semitism, you know, if you uh, if you say like the Jews uh, were sympathetic to communism, that's considered anti-Semitic. Uh, it turns out to be also wrong empirically uh, when you look at the numbers. But uh, independently of that, uh, just the general ascription uh, is considered anti-Semitic or uh if you look at, uh, you know, if you consider Jews to be swindlers, uh, you know, in their business dealings, that's considered anti-Semitic. So it's like another component. Or if you consider Jews to be Christ killers, uh, that's yet a third uh, kind of uh, way of uh, doing that. Or uh, even the biological arguments as uh, as being a different uh, as being a different race uh, also. Uh, uh, so lumping all of the, those things together does not get at all at, uh, if you will, which of these various branches are uh, of uh, anti-Semitism is actually the operative uh, uh, kind of anti-Semitism that, uh, uh, you know, might be behind this. And so uh, by splitting... Uh, you know, we're able to uh, at least examine, you know, you, uh, it's not that they're completely unrelated, but you can examine each one separately. Uh, and so, um, uh, and as it happens, there were political parties uh, 
in uh, uh, in Poland at the time, the nature of Poland's party system in the 1920s, uh, in particular, uh, there were tons of parties uh, just due to the way the rules were set up. So each little party, uh, each niche party, each niche view could get its own party. So there's like 50 parties uh, that are competing. And so you can actually narrow things down. Uh, even among right-wing parties, you can narrow down the one that is uh, the anti-Semitic one as opposed to the, you know, maybe less anti-Semitic one uh, and then focus um, and then focus on that. So uh, we really, you know, and uh, in the book, we examine the communist hypothesis versus, uh, you know, the other hypotheses actually separately uh, using uh, support for uh, different parties by both Jews and non-Jews. So it's a way of uh, disaggregating and being much more nuanced in, uh, as opposed to this big blanket label uh, of anti-Semitism, which doesn't tell you what's behind that. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Can you describe the political parties that represented Jews in pre-World War II Poland? What is known of Jewish voting patterns and Jewish voting preferences? Uh, now, you've, now you've hit upon how we, eventually, how we, how we got into this to begin with. Um, and um, so, as Jason just said, the, um, the, the, the electoral system of pre-World War II Poland was um, a proportional was proportional representation, right? Those of you who know, for example, Israel's current political uh, electoral system, it, it sort of resembled that, not exactly, but it, and what that allowed for, with a relatively small percentage of the vote, you could get representation in the Polish Senate. Jews were had the right to vote, and there were. Um, it won't surprise you to know divisions in the Jewish community, serious divisions. Um, and so you had, um, depending on how you chop it up, on um, about nine different Jewish political parties, ranging from revolutionary communist through sort of social democratic, um, like the Bund, for example, 
Mm -hmm. um, which were, you know, could be revolutionary, could be non-revolutionary, just trying to get representation in parliament. You had centrist Jewish parties. Um, you had then a whole range of Zionist Jewish parties, um, ranging from quite left-wing um, to pretty right-wing, to ranging from what you might consider kind of the, what would be contemporary versions of Labour versus Likud or, or Meretz versus Likud. In, right. In, in Israel, right? So you had both what was called general Zionism, right? And the leader of the general Zionists was a guy named Yitzhak Grunbaum. And Grunbaum um, was basically, that was a Jewish catch-all party that tried to get Jews from the left and the right to vote. And what did they want? They were the strongest party in, a Jew, strongest Jewish party in interwar Poland. And while on the one hand, it may be tempting to say what they really wanted was for everybody to leave to go to Israel, that wasn't really practical. Nobody could go to Israel for the simple reason that there wasn't an Israel. You Very few people could go to the, to the Middle East. What that party was mostly lobbying for, as were other Zionist parties, was Jewish communal rights, right? As they wanted social protection. They wanted the right not to not to work on 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 Saturdays because and to the end of Sunday closing laws because if you had Sunday closing laws which were Christian that meant that Jews couldn't work two days a week both Saturday and Sunday they wanted to have um, Jewish language schools both Hebrew and Yiddish um, essentially they were quite aggressive in their support of Jewish communal interests um, and then you had you had other Jewish groups. Right? You had Orthodox Jewish groups who were tended to be well, like the Agudat Yisrael, which still exists today, right, and um, throughout the world. And those parties were very, that party especially, was very willing to um, cooperate with virtually any Polish government, um, no matter how right-wing, uh, because they viewed themselves as separate to begin with. They weren't, didn't want integration. But the centrist Jewish parties, that is the general Zionists, they wanted Poland to integrate them as Jews, as Jews, not as Poles. And Yitzhak Grunbaum, interestingly enough, he wanted to be a minister in a Polish government. Um, although he was a member of the Siem, the parliament, he was never made a minister. He ends up leaving. Here's a little side note. He ends up leaving Poland in, um, in 1935 where he does manage to uh, go to the Yishuv, to, to the proto-state Israel. And he becomes Israel's first minister of the interior in 1948, right? That's quite a political career. Um, and um, so you had this giant range and the Jews tended to both disagree among themselves and they disagreed with the Poles and of different kinds of political, um, Polish political parties. What role did avarice play in the anti-Jewish pogroms that you examined? Uh, uh, so we, uh, so this is a big hypothesis that it's about, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's about robbing. Of course, robbery went on. It's you know, it's, uh, of course, it went on. Um, we consider this a correlation, but not the underlying. Uh, uh, if you will, uh, you know, not the main underlying cause. So uh, along with the violence that took place, there was, of course, uh, looting, uh, you know, taking from uh, helpless victims. And so, uh, you know, avarice was there. So uh, it was there, but we tried to, you know, we tried to uh, 
basically say that uh, when you when you look at uh, the limited data available, which would allow you to get at uh, 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 avarice, there is a relationship there, but it's not as strong as the relationship between pogroms and uh, support for Zionist parties, which is our main uh, explanatory variable. So it's there, but smaller. Thank you. Yeah. You write on as follows on page 104. Pogroms had a mass character with participation, either as bystander, perpetrator, or rescuer, of heterogeneous segments of the Ukrainian public, including mayors, priests, veterinarians, lawyers, and policemen. But all of these people lived in broader communities that conditioned, if not determined, their de ability to do the quote-unquote right or quote-unquote wrong thing. Consider priests, who as authoritative figures probably had the power either to prevent violence or instigate it. Testimonies frequently point to the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church and the local priests, and then the local priest, but priests appear both as proponents and opponents of pogroms. Thus, for example, it is well known that Father Andrei Shepitsky, the Metropolitan of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, while welcoming Ukrainian independence, condemned local violence and pogroms and sheltered Jews during the war. Can you elaborate on this passage for us? Sure. Um, let me take let to take a try at it. Um, if you look at the study of the Holocaust, a lot of the studies, assertions of who helped and who either failed to help or became a perpetrator against Jews, they tend to look at the kind of the individual level, that is the, 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 um, the ethics. It becomes a study of ethics. Who does the right thing under the rights, under very trying circumstances? Which priests acted, acted best, which did not? Which doctors acted best, which did not? And one of the things we found is that it's not that those factors aren't important, they're very important, but that they're, who was the good priest? Who was the good um, um, doctor? That is where you had a, a number of these people. These were not these were not randomly redistributed. These appear to be distributed um, systematically, or more or less systematically, across different kinds of communities. And so, in some ways, it takes a village. That one of the things we found when Jews would come to a priest and say, "Look, can you stop this?" The priest sometimes said, look, I'd like to, but if I do, my own people will throw me into the mud, as it were, under the bus, we'd say, we'd say in contemporary terms. Um, and so different kinds of communities were more likely to help Jews, and the people who were more likely to help Jews, whatever profession or field they happen to be from, were more likely to live in those kinds of communities. Now, you raised Sheptitsky. Right. Um, this is Lvov, one of the pogroms, not just we, there's a lot of people who've worked on this, on this pogrom. Um, and he was the metropolitan of the Greek Catholic Church. And when the Germans invade, they bring in Ukrainian nationalists with them who help organize this pogrom. Sheptitsky, on the one hand, was in favor of Ukrainian independence, which the Germans had promised. And he even gave, you know, communion to German soldiers. Um, on the other hand, he hit Jews, right? Um, so, and he and he condemned he condemned violence against Jews, 
right? And so you have on the one hand, it's it's the Ukrainians were in, a, especially those who were in favor of national independence, were in a very difficult situation. You had the the, the, the Germans who said, "Look, we're going to give you independence." They lied, of course, but we're going to give you independence. You've just got to do this one thing for us first. Right? And that one thing was help them carry out their war aims. And one of those war aims was the, was the massacre of Jews who were living there. And Sheptitsky found himself caught slap dab in the middle of all of this. And, you know, by and large, he acted well. Um, but the point of our book is that that distribution of virtue, if you will, was not random. Right? It was sort of systematic. It was easier to do the right thing in certain kinds of places. It was more difficult in others. And that just highlights Sheptitsky's heroism in some ways, that in that place, and what was the, cap the capital right, of, of Western Ukraine, um, it would have been very, very difficult for him to kind of unilaterally come out and say, no, these are bad people, don't follow them. Right? Um, and so he was navigating that. That's, that's my quick and dirty take on that. To what degree can your findings apply to pogroms against Jews outside of Poland and pogroms against Jews before the 1930s, such as the Kishinev pogrom or the pogroms against Jews during the Russian Civil War and Russian yeah. Revolution? Uh, so uh, certainly uh, uh, when it comes to Lithuania and, uh, you know, a po uh, other parts of the eastern borderlands, which for uh, data availability reasons we don't address in the book, such as, uh, uh, you know, Lithuania and to a lesser extent, Volhynia, which does appear in the book, but is outside the regular data analysis. Uh, it absolutely applies. Uh, we just don't have the data to, uh, you know, uh, illustrate um, the, sa uh, the same thing. So so that's uh, very clear. Uh now, one thing about the research design of the book, uh, and this is uh, this is uh, 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 how it relates to like uh, pogroms in the 1930s, Kishinev, uh, 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 other things in the in the Russian Empire, is um, those places had functioning governments, and so uh, within the literature on this kind of violence, there's always the elephant in the room is the role of the government in uh, organizing them, or uh, if they don't organize them, they let them happen or they intervene. Anyway, the government is there uh, doing things uh, to affect the to affect where pogroms occur and don't occur. Now, the advantage of doing the 1941, the wave of 1941 pogroms, the great advantage is that there was no functioning national government. Uh, in the Polish Eastern borderlands in the summer of 1941, because the government collapses. Uh, uh, the Soviets withdraw, uh, you know, Poland, uh, the Eastern borderlands had been occupied by the Soviet Union uh, uh, since the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So, uh, um, uh, uh, so there's no functioning government, which means people can act on their inclinations without a fear uh, of uh, government punishment. So, uh, which me, and the implication of that is uh, in other instances, in other pogrom waves, uh, such as in the Russian Empire, uh, etc., 
there are probably uh, fewer pogroms actually take place than would have taken place had there not been a government, because a lot of people, you know, they don't want to go to jail. So they don't commit a pogrom because they fear that the government will come in and, uh, you know, throw them in jail for it. And so uh, in our view, in these ways, it actually is undercounts the number of uh, the programs that it would have actually occurred had people just been willing to uh, been able to act on their impulses as they did to a much greater extent in the summer of 1941. So, uh, in other words, uh, this uh, 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 our study of the summer of 1941, which partially also applies to the wave of pogroms uh, in the uh, Russian Empire, the former Russian Empire, in the Ukrainian eras of like 1918 and 1919, about which books have been written, partially also applies to those because it was a kind of a civil war uh, atmosphere. Uh, but... Um, uh, uh, everybody who deals with pogroms under a settled government uh, has to deal with the government itself. And it's very di it's very difficult to disentangle the role of the government from the role from the role of popular uh, proclivities to engage in uh, and willingness to engage in this sort of violence. So we were able to do that because of the research design, essentially isolate popular proclivities. Uh, without regard for the government. But most people have to deal with the government. On page 110, you write the following. There are five noteworthy features of pogrom localities. First, and unsurprisingly, given our prior findings, pogroms occur where Jews are most visible, both in percentage, Jewish, and absolute number of Jews terms. Second, pogroms occur more frequently where Ukrainians, Eastern Orthodox, are more evenly matched demographically with Jews. This suggests that underlying Ukrainian aggression might have been a sense of competition with and perceived threat from Jews who were economically dominant in the larger towns. Indeed, over two-thirds of the shuttles in Volochinia suffered a pogrom. Third, the minorities block, Min block, 28 was far more popular where pogroms occurred. We are unsure how to interpret this result. It could indicate either greater Ukrainian nationalism, as in Galicia, or Jewish support for national rights, as in the Northeast. Can you say more about this passage? Can you elaborate the distinct features of, of pogrom localities for us? Sure. Go ahead, Jason. So, so just one clarification. Um, uh, I believe uh, that that discussion uh, is in regard to Volhynia. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem with Volhynia, uh, which stands as a separate analysis, separate from the other places that we uh, examine, uh, is that the nature of the data. Uh, do not allow us to do this kind of separation that I referred to earlier in which we can neatly, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, distinguish between uh, Zionist parties and non-Zionist parties and uh, uh, anti-Semitic non-Jewish parties and uh, uh, and other uh, and other non-Jewish parties. And so, first of all, this refers to Volhynia. 
And the interesting thing about Volhynia, or one of the interesting things, is that um, in Volhynia, the Ukrainians tend to be Eastern Orthodox as opposed to Greek Catholic. Now, the thing about Greek Catholic uh, Ukrainians is uh, the Greek Catholic Church and Greek Catholic Ukrainians, which are uh, concentrated in, even today in Western Ukraine uh, and are still the hotbed of Ukrainian nationalism, uh, they're the ones uh, that were uh, the main drivers behind uh, Ukrainian uh, the quest for Ukrainian sovereignty. The Eastern Orthodox uh, Ukrainians uh, had uh, much more sympathy for their Russian and Belarusian Orthodox uh, brethren, and therefore uh, were maybe uh, not unenthusiastic, but less uh, gung-ho about that. Uh, which uh, And if that's true, that has implications for expectations about what you should see uh, you know, what you should see uh, in Ukraine. Remember, the main analysis is is Roman Catholic Poles and Greek Catholic Ukrainians, both of which, uh, 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 you know, both of which uh, were strongly in favor of Polish sovereignty in the Polish areas and uh, Ukrainian sovereignty in the Ukrainian areas. Volhynia was a middle ground. And so uh, Volhynia is actually, in terms of uh, numbers, uh, not actually representative of the Polish Eastern borderlands as a whole. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, that's that's the elaboration, is it? it's actually an attempt to account for an exceptional area and not a description of uh, the vast majority of settlements, which were... Uh, uh, in the other voivodeships that we uh, that we analyze, what does your book teach us about the nature and character of Polish nationalism? Um, well, it's a big it's a big question. It depends what you mean by Polish nationalism. If you simply mean the desire for an independent Polish sovereign state, um, that um, I think that there were most versions of Jewish politics were compatible with that. Um, if you say Polish nationalism, you're saying extreme Polish nationalism, that is to say only Roman Catholic Polish speaking citizens of, of Poland could really have the right to full membership. Right? Well, then I think one of the lessons here is that under the right circumstances, this can go very bad. But it's important to realize that the Poles themselves, and not just the Poles, but the Ukrainians, we're deeply divided on this question of a of a of a a, a kind of a narrow ethnic version, a religio ethnic version of of the nation versus a broader civic um, version of the nation in which any in which your identity had to do with which state you identified. If you're Jewish and you identify with Poland, you're a Pole, just like if you're in the United States and you're Jewish and you identify with the United States, you're an American, and so. The you know, part of what we're talking about in this book, and I think a big part of what's driving it, is our internal divisions within the dominant communities. That the dominant communities, that is Poles or Ukrainians, they themselves hadn't fully decided. They hadn't fully decided on what kind of country they wanted. I mean, it's an irony that if you're going to have a very narrow definition of who's a member, and you take over giant sections of territory, 
that have people who don't define themselves in that narrow way, you're going to have a problem. You then need to decide, do you wish to kind of um, integrate them do that, or to assimilate them into your, into your culture? Or do you wish to invite them to leave, to encourage them to emigrate, or to kill them? Right, and that leaves you with 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 a set of kind of difficult options. And I think both these dominant groups, both the Poles and the Ukrainians, were faced with these kinds of difficult difficult decisions. That is, they could have had smaller territories with less ethnic and fewer ethnic minorities. Um, or and you know, as we know, those are not the only countries in the world that are that have confronted this kind of problem. You either have a big place where you're not as ethnically homogenous or you or you have a smaller place that's more ethnically and culturally homogenous. Where does the Soviet Union play into the story that you tell here? What does your book reveal about the Soviet occupation of Poland? What role did the NKVD play in Poland during the times that you document? Well, the yeah, uh, uh, Jeff can talk about the NKVD. I'll talk about the Soviet occupation. So uh, the uh, primary role of the so we don't say much about this, you know, uh, uh, much about the Soviet Union. It's a you know kind of a peripheral. Uh, uh, you know, it's early enough. Uh, remember, we stop at the end of August, beginning of September, nineteen forty-one, and so uh, uh, you know, Barbarossa is still uh, you know well on its way. Um, however. The Soviet occupation of Poland, uh, if you will, uh, is a disaster for community relations in the territories under Soviet occupation, because the Soviets, uh, in their way, they uh, have their uh, the groups that they want to promote and the groups that they want to crush. Uh, they want to crush Ukrainian nationalism and Polish nationalism. And so, uh, 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 you know, all groups get deported under this, uh, you know, experience deportation. But uh, uh, but the Jews actually get more equality under 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 Soviet uh, uh, control than they had under Polish control um, in the 1930s. And so uh, this not this not only sets uh, the Poles and the Ukrainians are more against the Jews than they may have been uh, to begin with. Uh, but it also coarsens uh, it coarsens society in the sense that uh, violence, deportation, humiliation are basically going on for two years uh, before our story starts, and this actually contributes to the willingness of populations to just keep engaging in violence. Uh, uh, you know, revenge and humiliation once our story does start. So uh, it kind of affects the whole area, you know, similarly. I mean, if you think about the, the um, um, when the Soviets invade, as Jason said, um, the Soviets invade, kind of eat, take over Eastern Poland, which which was really Ukrainian and, and, and Belarusian um, and, and Polish. And when they take over that area, there's a gigantic ethnic reversal of fortune. The Poles who used to be on top are not on top anymore. The Ukrainians who are hoping for some kind of national independence, they look at Ukraine, the Soviet Ukraine, and say, this is sort of fake. And the Belarusians are, in some ways similar to the Jews, are basically given 
for the first time their kind of own kind of equality and autonomy. And the Jews themselves, when faced with the possibility of either German occupation in pre-19, in, in the Western, central and Western part of the country, or the Soviet occupation, view the Soviets as the kind of the lesser of two evils. And because they're sort of given equality, when the time comes and the Germans invade, the Germans, one of the first things they discover, and here we come to the NKVD, the precursor to the KGB, in several, in, in, in dozens of places, the just before the Soviets leave, the NKVD, which has its own prisons where they had arrested Ukrainian and Polish nationalists, but some Jews as well too. They massacred everybody in those, in those um, prisons. And when the Germans came in, they discovered this and they brought in locals and they said, did you see, you see what the Jews have done? They blamed what the Soviets had done on the Jews. And with that, they tried to kickstart the pogroms. And that was for sure made these pogroms way worse where they happened. But it's important to recognize that that's not the only place that pogroms happen. Lots of pogroms happened where there were no NKVD prisons, right? So while we consider that a kind of an accelerator or, or, or exacerbating factor, it was by no means the only factor, right? Lot of the Soviet occupation was all over the borderlands. But pogroms only happened, it's important to recall from the very beginning of our discussion in about 10% of places. Um, that is to say, there's no evidence that Soviet rule was any worse where pogroms did happen than where they didn't. Um, and so that's that that's how to contextualize that. I think. How does your book advance your understanding of violence? How can students and scholars of violence as a social phenomenon in other fields of the social sciences and humanities benefit from the findings in this study? Well, violence is a big, uh, you know, it's a big sprawling thing, you know, with many types. And so we need to kind of narrow it down. Uh, this is, it, you know, you could think of this as intercommunal violence. Um, uh, uh, you know, violence by one a civilian group against another civilian group. That's the general thing that puts lynchings and uh hindu muslim mo most hindu muslim violence all in the same big barrel uh and i would say the uh you know the primary contribution is not in the details of what happened in poland but in the idea uh that uh certain uh community features are more likely to contribute this that you can actually measure before the violence takes place. So, uh, you know, you can take the measures and then identify places of potential communal uh, violence. Uh, and uh, the main um, uh, the main factor we emphasize in the book is this, uh, 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 let's uh, call it political polarization, uh, uh, into competing national, you know, competing nationalisms uh, within a community. Uh, another would be where there's an ethnic division of labor. Uh, we don't emphasize this so much, but it is a pattern uh, uh, where there's a division of labor that pits one group against another without any cross-cutting uh, cleavages. That would be another uh, potential uh, thing that uh, if you had a spark, it could alight. That that uh, I think, in my view, that's the primary 
you know, lesson for people that are doing uh, completely different uh, kinds of violence in other parts of the world. Yeah. So if you think about think about you know, and this is total speculative, of course, but um, you know, the Charlottesville um, violence that occurred in January 2017. What if that community had not been a liberal college town with the police who basically cared and wanted to stop this, but if in some place, let's say a small town that was ethnically divided, as Jason said, where there'd been a division, an ethnic division of labor in the deep south where the cops didn't care, right? Under those kinds of circumstances, one might expect kind of the passions to be allowed to be played out and vendettas allowed to be played out and it could have been much, much worse. So we, I mean, you know, it's hard to talk about lessons here, but we've pointed to um, potential risk factors, risk factors, and those are worth, those are, I think, are, are worth paying attention to, right? In an age of political polarization and racial and ethnic divisions, I think there are kind of obvious parallels, if not identities. I mean, nothing's ever identical, but um, I think that's important for, um, you know, people didn't know. I mean, we, one of the things when Jason started off talking about was this part of the Holocaust, and we say this is before the Holocaust. People in 1941, when we say it wasn't part of the Holocaust, what we mean is that it's easy for us to say in retrospect that it was part of the Holocaust because we know what would happen next. But nobody in the summer of 1941 knew there would be a Holocaust. Not to mention it earlier, 1938, during Kristallnacht, when we're talking 1941, right? Even months later, people didn't know. There could have been mass shootings without having been concentration death camps, right? It really wasn't until much later that what, in retrospect, we refer to as one big systematic killing of the Jews. So we're talking about this episode. And this episode is is super important, we think, for understanding other potential similar kinds of episodes. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your attention and time have gone since completing this book? What have you worked on since? What have I worked on since? Um, well, I've done a, a couple of things. One is um, I've tried to see, I mean, Jason brought up an important point earlier that is to what we find is that restricted in validity to the era of modern politics. It's not that politics didn't occur earlier, it's that they were mediated by other factors. So one of the things I've been working on is trying to compare these pogroms that we found to other earlier instances of anti-Jewish violence. And I've gone back to antiquity, um, trying to look at those things and what was the nature of politics under those kinds of circumstances. And so to see, and or perhaps not, perhaps, perhaps what we found is simply sui generis to modernity. And that's 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 possible too. Um, but I, I, that, then that's worth highlighting as well. Um, I'm not I'm not quite so sure about that. Um, so so that's mostly what I've been doing over the last couple of years. Thank you. Uh, and I uh... I've uh, pr primarily, uh, like the main uh, thrust has been uh, uh, a project on, uh, you know, understanding historical persistence, how it happens and what it, you know, how to conceptualize it, uh, you know, what it means uh, and how it happens. Thank you. It's, that sounds fascinating. Um, I can hardly thank, thank you enough. Thank for you, your, Ari. I can hardly thank you enough for your 
erudition and for your generous answers in the dialogue that we shared today. Thanks, Ari. Thanks, Ari. We appreciate it. As we end today's conversation, Jeffrey Kopstein and Jason Wittenberg are the authors of Intimate Violence, Anti-Jewish Pogroms on the Eve of the Holocaust, published in Ithaca by Cornell University Press 2018. Jeffrey is professor and chair of political science at the University of California, Irvine. Jason is professor of political science at University of California, Berkeley. Thank you very much. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.